This morning, I'll ask you to turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, probably familiar verses to many, if not most or all. Hear the word of God, it says, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin or not with reference to sin for salvation. He will appear a second time for salvation. Now there's various words we might use to kind of summarize this for salvation. Just the reading of it, you realize he came once. The Bible teaches he's going to come a second time. The first time he came, he came to deal with sin. The second time he's going to come, the second coming, it's going to have to do with the consummation of the salvation that he wrought or worked in his first coming. He accomplished something for believers in his first coming. He's going to consummate that which he accomplished. He's going to bring it to perfection or fruition at his second coming. So my title for this sermon is The Consummation of Salvation. Scripture is clear, the same Lord Jesus that won salvation for us in his sufferings and glory will consummate salvation when he comes again. This is the great hope that Christians have, the confident expectation that God is going to do what he has promised to do in his word in the future with reference to Christ and believers. This consummation of salvation comes as a result of what the theology of the Bible depicts for us. Christ's work for us is revealed to us in Scripture as a covenanted work. By his sufferings and glory, our Lord inaugurates what the Bible calls the everlasting or new covenant in Hebrews 13, 20. But when our Lord comes again, his divine power will be executed such that he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So when he comes again, Divine power is going to be executed and terminate on the corpses and souls of all who believe in Jesus, and they're going to be transformed into the likeness of his glory, his glorified state. Believers will experience 
great joy in his presence, in the presence of his glory. That's the Jude 24 and 25. I often mention that. We kind of know what joy is, but what in the world is great joy? Uh, someday we'll know. We'll be blameless, it says, in his presence. Obviously, the first coming of, of our Lord didn't inaugurate the consummation of salvation, but it was the winning of the salvation that's going to be consummated, according to our text and other texts, when he comes the second time. Scripture says that we shall see him as he is and be like him. What in the world does that mean? I'm not sure, but it sounds good, doesn't it? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. So the salvation that present believers now on the earth enjoy is enjoyed in the midst of sin and sorrow and death. Someday the salvation that we enjoy will be absent from all the sin, sorrow, and death that we experience now. All that will come to an end when our Lord comes again. So the consummation of our salvation is going to happen, but it has not happened. Now, we're going to look at these two verses. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Now, I have two major headings for my sermon. The first is uh, high-level observations. I have three of them. And then the next is an exposition of the verses. So listen to these high-level observations, trying to put everything in context here. First, Paul is... Right? Paul, is arguing for the superiority of Christ over the ancient Jewish regulations of divine worship and its earthly sanctuary. So putting it in context, Paul is arguing there's something that's consummative in one sense about the person and work of Jesus himself. All that transpired before, you can read it in the Old Testament, was preparation for this grand person and work and event. Okay? All of that set the stage for him. He is that to which it all pointed. He is the key, by the way, to unlock the, 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 the Old Testament itself. Once you have the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ, and then the, the New Testament, which is an exposition of the sufferings and glory of Christ in relation to the Old Testament, you can go back to the Old Testament and see more than you ever dreamed of seeing. He is it. He's the big deal. He should be the big deal of our lives as well. Second high-level observation, our Lord has been manifested on the earth at the end of the ages to put away sin. Look at verse 26. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, here's the language, at the end of of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he was manifested on the earth at the end of the ages to put away 
sin. That's referring to his first coming. By the way, are we in the end times? Yeah, it's been that way since the first century, right? The end of the ages is, is really an Old Testament perspective on the age of the Messiah, on the days in which the Messiah, having appeared, now rules and reigns. Third, our Lord will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So that first coming, it was very much connected to sin. Why did Jesus come to the earth? To deal with someone's sin. To deal with his own sin? Nope. Yet without sin, to deal with our sin. The next time he comes in relation to believers, it's not going to be to deal with their sins. That's already happened. It is finished. He accomplished the work of our redemption. He bore our stains. He bore our sins. He bore our guilt. When he comes again, it's for a, a wonderful reason, uh, which we'll see here in a second. So hopefully these observations kind of help us. Now, notice, first of all, in our exposition, it's not our exposition. Why do preachers say that? It's my exposition, right? You're not doing the exposition. Anyway, consider firstly. Notice the comparison between the death of men and the death of Christ. It's here. You can see it. Um, it is appointed for men to die once. So Christ was offered up once. So we have the death of men and we have the death of Christ. Now, due to sin and the corresponding divine judgment upon sin, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. You think Paul ever read Genesis chapters 1 through 3? Sounds like it, didn't it? In the day you eat from it, dying you shall die, is the literal, I think. Death in its various aspects, spiritual, physical, eternal, comes as a result of sin and leads to judgment. The separation of soul from right communion with God, the separation of soul and body, these are divine inflictions executed upon us because of sin. Why is, why is death so horrid to us, so terrible to think about and you know watch somebody experience it's because it's so un it's unnatural it's not natural it's not like created it's a subsequent to creation a divine judgment upon us but it says here so christ was offered once to bear the sins of many Christ, having been offered once, or his death, was, the was for the purpose of bearing the sins of many. You think Paul read Isaiah 53? Kind of sounds like Isaiah 53 there. He bore the sins of many. His death was for others, so others did not have to die the type of death he experienced. Second, notice verse 27 where we read, it is appointed. 
It is appointed. Who does this appointing? This is a, you know, a sober reality here. God. Death came because sin came due to a violated covenant in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Listen, hundreds of years later to a prophet of, of the Lord Jesus, Hosea 6-7. But like Adam, they, Israel, have transgressed the covenant. Adam transgressed a covenant. Israel transgressed their own covenant. Death then is the judicial divine penalty for sin, the transgression of a covenant. This is pretty much bad news so far. I, I hope the preacher gets on to some good news at some point, right? Third observation, notice that death is first in the order of our text, but death is not all there is. Death is actually subservient to what comes after death, namely, the judgment. But after this, it says, after death, it doesn't tell us how long after death, but it does say judgment. For unbelievers, death is a portal through which they enter the sphere of judgment. How about believers? For believers, is death a portal through which they enter the sphere of judgment unto condemnation? No. Whatever type of death believers die, it's not the same as unbelievers. Because unbelievers die and await the ultimate judgment where they'll be consigned, uh, condemned and consigned to punishment. So this, in this text, after this comes the judgment. It refers to the judgment and subsequent sentence of condemnation that will occur for all who die without Christ Listen to, uh, listen to John Owen, 17th century. As surely as men die, it is sure that somewhat else follows after death. It's pointed for men to die then, okay? So as sure as it is that men die, so it is as sure that something subsequent to the death is going to happen, namely Judgment. After death comes judgment. Notice fourth that at verse 28, our thoughts are taken from the death and future condemnation of all unbelievers to Christ. Finally, we have some relief for our souls here. This one death for the sins of many, and then not just looking back, but we're also, our souls are carried on to gaze at the future, his future appearance on the earth for salvation. 
So we're, do, we're told to do two things, basically. Consider the past, consider the future. The words, the sins of many, by the way, refers back to Isaiah 53, 12. I already mentioned that. He himself bore the sin of many. That's Isaiah 53, 12. Isn't it great when the Bible does that? Uh, and it's great when we've read the Bible enough or heard it preach enough when we can make those connections ourselves. Or if the preacher makes them for you, you know, you have the aha moment and going, oh, I forgot. That's right. I've read that before. He himself bore the sins of many. Do you hear the mediator through the prophet Isaiah way back before the incarnation yelling to the world in the, about the future? I'm going to bear the sins of many. I will assume the guilt of others. I'll crush the head of the serpent myself. I'll bring people to, into the safe presence of God. All that's taught in the Old Testament in various ways. Why did Christ offer himself once to bear the sins of many? The answer lies in this. It is appointed for men to die once as a penalty for sin. Since Christ lived and died for others, others who were guilty of sin, and therefore liable to its penalty, namely death, therefore he died or offered himself as a sacrifice unto death as a penalty for the sins of many, and he did that once at the end of the ages to put away the sins of many. His death was the death of our death as a penalty for sin. Uh, John Owen, the death of death in the death of Christ is a title of a, a work he wrote. His death was the death of our death as a penalty for sin. So you know how sometimes you'll be at a funeral and people will be saying, well, they're in a better place. In my experience, usually I wasn't convinced they were. But for believers, it is true. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, better place. He bore our sins, that is, he bore the guilt, the just liability of our sins, death being the penalty for them, for our sins. This means that for believers, death is not a judicial penalty. But as I said before, a portal through which we go in order to be translated to the presence of the Lord in heaven, 2 Corinthians 5.8, absent, I'd, Paul says he'd rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Have you thought about that? I've said this before, I know, but you go to a funeral of a believer, and we need to think about this. This death is not a judicial penalty upon my loved one. Why? Because the Lord Jesus took the judicial penalty of death upon himself for that loved one. Fifth observation, I have seven. Ooh, 
the number of perfection. Fifth observation is this. Notice that the judgment unto condemnation in verse 27 is opposed to the for salvation in verse 28. Let's read the verses again. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ, this is like some sort of antithesis, was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Verse 28 is not about the second coming of Christ as it relates to unbelievers. Right? If you read this, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So this has not to do with the relation of unbelievers at the second coming of Christ, but for believers, those who eagerly await him. This is for salvation. He will appear a second time. Uh, didn't he appear the first time for salvation? Yeah, but that's why we use that word consummation of the salvation that he's already won for us comes in the future. Not only did Christ deal with death as a penalty for the sins of many in his first coming, Christ dealt with a consequent of death as a penalty for sin, namely judgment unto condemnation, so that his second coming, as it relates to believers, is not for judgment unto condemnation, but for salvation. This is why we read, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because whatever condemnation and judgment was due us, he swallowed it up and exhausted it for us. Listen to John Owen. He says, Christ shall appear the second time to free us from judgment unto condemnation and to bestow on us eternal salvation. Whatever that's like. Sixth, notice that his second coming, as it relates to believers, is for salvation. Those are huge words. You know, sometimes you read and you don't get the full oomph of what two words can do for you in a text. I hope you get the full oomph this time. For salvation, those are important. Here's that old Master John Owen again. At the second appearance of Christ... There will, there will be an end of all the business about sin, both on his part and ours. He's talking in relation to believers. When he comes again, we won't have to deal with sin ever again. It is for the consummation of the salvation accomplished but is by his life unto death, unto eternal life, covenantal obedience for us while on the earth at his first coming. That was a big sentence, wasn't it? What is he going to do when he comes again? Give us everything he's got for us. He's going to hold nothing back. And then seventh and finally, 
Notice, to whom he will appear as the consummator of salvation. To those who eagerly wait for him. To those who eagerly wait for him. And to those alone, he will appear a second time apart from sin, or not with reference to sin, but with reference to their ultimate salvation. To those who eagerly wait for him. Have you ever read that and just thought, uh, how eagerly do I have to wait for him? Uh, I'll say this, not much, but you just need to, you need to wait for him. You need to have the, not the confident expectation not the confidence in my own expectations, okay? But the confident expectation that whatever God has promised, he's going to fulfill. So our hope is not in our sub, is not subjective, merely, my own hoping. How much hope, how much eagerness do I have to have to be saved? You have to believe in Christ to be saved. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but it is in its extra, extraspective, whatever that word is. It looks outside of, it's Christospective. It looks outside of us to that which is promised in the word by God. That's our confidence. The Christian hope is not just us crossing our fingers and going, well, I hope it's all going to turn out for the, for the better. It's the confident expectation that there's a, there's a glory train coming around the mountain that God started and God's going to complete. And no one's going to stop it. How do you know that? Well, he's promised it in his word. When did he start promising that? Well, at least Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. A man is going to come from a woman and destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3.8. And those who eagerly await him or eagerly wait for him are the ones to whom and for whom he will appear to consummate, to bring into perfection or maturity or fruition everything that he's done for them and everything that he's promised to them. You ever wondered, why do Christians eagerly wait for him? Well, it should be, okay, because they know his promise. That's why it should be. They know what he is going to do. Um, behold. He will make all things new. You ever heard those words before? Those are not small words. He will usher his own into a kingdom that was covenanted to him, Luke 22, 29, I think, before the world began. He's going he's gonna to give a kingdom bestow all the benefits of this kingdom 
upon those given to him before the foundation of the world. But he's going to do that in the future. He will grant to us a kingdom in which only dwells righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 3. To those who eagerly wait for him, what are they going to get? That which eye has not seen, neither has ear heard all that the Lord has in store for those who love him or those who eagerly wait for him. This is one of those verses where I, I just feel so inadequate. You know, I want to grab everybody and say, you're not getting this. You need to, you know. And I want to start with myself, by the way, because these are, this is life and death stuff here. Okay, it's terrifying on the one hand, Death is actually an instrument through which the ultimate thing's going to come, judgment for some. Death for others, because of Christ's death for them, is a portal to a better life, <laughs> to a better place, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Christ is coming. These are some of the richest verities or truth claims of the Christian faith. He came once for sin. He's coming a second time in relation to believers for the consummation of their salvation. First coming, second coming. So I have some contemplations. Should be brief because we have to be out of here at 1230. So first of all, in light of our text, everyone here... This morning needs to think about death. I'm sure you've thought of it before. Maybe you haven't contemplated it. Why death? Sin. <laughs> One of my friends on the shelf said this, it is the interest of all living to inquire diligently what death will be unto them. If you're alive, by the way, you're alive. <laughs> if you're hearing my voice, by the way, you're hearing my voice. This old master says, you need to think about what will death be unto you? A portal to judgment or a portal to glory? Those are the two options. That's it? There's only two options? Full stop. Either death will usher your soul into a frightful state awaiting the judgment of the last day or it won't. Two options. Count them. One, a bad type of death. Two, the best type of death to die. There's no third option, no second chance after death. Here's John Owen again. This is one of my favorite things he's ever said. As death leaves men, so shall judgment find them. Hear what he just said? 
Whatever state you die in at death, judgment's going to find you in that state. If you die in your sins, if you die guilty with no forgiveness and no righteousness as offered in the gospel, you're going to be judged in that very state. It's very sobering to think about. As death leaves men, so shall judgment find them. So my first contemplation is this. Everyone here needs to think about death. Now, I don't want to end the sermon on a bad note. I have some more contemplations. We'll save them for the next hour. But just think about this, okay? We just looked at Hebrews chapter 9. You know, that's 13 chapters. We just looked at one tiny part of one of its chapters and only two verses. And packed in those two verses are tons of truth. Figuratively speaking, of course, you know, truth doesn't like weigh. Actually, it does weigh, but not on a scale. There's a lot in these two verses. The whole purpose for the incarnation is, is right here. That we're guilty and sinners, it, it, it's right there. The first coming of Christ, it's there. The, the second coming of Christ, it's there. The purpose for the incarnation, for salvation, uh, uh, for sins, connected to sin somehow, some way, that's there. The purpose of the second coming in relation to believers for salvation, that's there. Death is there. And there's an antithesis between the death of unbelievers and not only the death of Christ, but also the death of believers, at least by implication. All this I tried to show you. It's just packed all in two verses. It's, it's like sm- should smack us against the head. Wake up. We're going to die. Either you die and that, that is, and judgment's going to find you in the state of sin and guilt or you die and you're happy with the Lord. Those are the two options. Big, huge Implications for us as sinners. Also, this should infuse, reinvigorate our souls as believers. It should make us happy. Who should be the happiest people on earth? Should be us, right? Uh, Should be us. Why? My sins are dealt with. Uh, somehow, some way, the clouds are going to be torn apart and torn. he's going to make a, an incision in the clouds and come and he's going to call souls back into renovated bodies. He's going to exert, execute power. He doesn't exert, right? God doesn't exert, we exert. God executes. Uh, even though the New American Standard says exert, which is a bummer. He's going to execute divine power that terminates upon us. He's going to reunite soul, our souls, perfected souls, assuming we're not here when he comes, with our jalopy, messed up bodies. He's going to, but well, not with our messed up bodies. He's going to renovate the bodies as well. And then body-soul fully intact, 
like unto his glorified state, will exist, will commune with each other, with the holy angels, and with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally. By the way, only God is eternal, but the scriptures uses the word eternal life for us, but it's not eternal in the divine sense, right? But in a creaturely sense, that is forever. So that's what it means. Forever and ever and ever and ever. St. Dave thinks I need to say it again. And forever and ever and ever. It's, which is, I don't know how to, what do you mean forever and ever and ever? I mean forever and ever and ever. And if you want to know what it means experientially, repent of your sins, believe in the gospel, and you'll know someday. Okay? So that's, that's the big deal. And, and if we've done that, it's like, well, you know. If you are in Christ, it's his doing. It's not like I, I jumped into Christ because I'm good. I got carried into Christ by the gracious work of, of God. And so it should make us humble and thankful. And I'm trying to land the plane, so let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray your blessings upon it. These are sobering truths. It's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. Christ came the first time in reference to sin. He became a guilt offering for the guilty. He stood in our place. He died the death we should have died. But he died this death for us, for our salvation. The death that we die is not the same as the death of unbelievers or even the death of Christ. He's coming a, a second time. He appeared at the end of the ages, the latter days, according to the Old Testament, to deal with sin, to bear the sins of many, as our Lord tells us through the prophet Isaiah. That next time he comes, oh, how glorious it will be. Please help us to live in light of our hope, of our confident expectation that you'll do what you've promised to do in your word and nobody's going to be able to stop you. Uh, fuel our hearts by these truths to now respond as we sing and receive our praises through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat>